would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of all of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea soar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. All right. So today you can see we're taking a little break from 1 Samuel and uh, going to preach this message about joy to the world. Can we sing joy to the world? I mean, we live in a world that's seen its share of curses over the past two years especially, right? And... Uh, it's tempting to just kind of throw your hands up and give up and say, you know, this, this world's had it. And uh, especially at Christmas, right, when that song comes along and everybody's talking about joy to the world, right? And some would say, man, can we really sing that? Can we really sing joy to the world in a world that is so broken with pain and disappointment? I mean, we see a worldwide pandemic. We see Russia on the verge of invading Ukraine. We, 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 we see inflation. We see school shootings. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, can we really sing joy to the world? And my response to that is, if you are a Christian, you better believe you can. You better believe you can. Yes, we can sing joy to the world, and we, and we must Sing joy to the world. Now, we've all heard that famous hymn. We just, we, we, we're going to hear it in a minute. Um, and I'm sure we've all sang that famous hymn. And I'm sure we've all thought that that hymn is talking about the birth of Jesus. Now, that hymn was written in 1719 by a man named Isaac Watts. And it was not written about the birth of Jesus. That song is all about the second coming of Jesus, the second advent. The one that we're looking for, the fact that Jesus is coming again to vanquish evil once and for all, and he will rule and reign in perfect justice and righteousness. There will be peace forevermore, new heavens and new earths. It's looking forward to the total fulfillment of our salvation, that promise that we are longing for. And so, so that is, 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 is what this song is about. Now, he based that song on Psalm 96, Psalm 98, and Genesis chapter 3, especially verses 17 and 18. And all we're going to do today is just kind of walk through that and, and, and encourage ourselves with those scriptures and that idea that Isaac Watts uh, rested in. 
That, because this is what Christians do, folks. This is why we are together today. We get together to remind each other that we can continue to suffer well for Christ. We, we don't really get together in this life to talk about how blessed we're going to be and how rich we're going to be and how successful we're going to be and how liked we're going to be. No, we get together because Christians in this world, if they're living for Christ, they realize that there is this longing for home, that this world is not our home. We are not complete here. And there is actually a struggle in this world. And when we come together, we encourage each other by focusing on the only hope we have in this world, which is the eternal word of God, God's voice to his people. And we focus on that. And what do we see? We see that we can sing in the midst of darkness. We see that we have a hope that transcends this life. And so that's what we want to talk about today. As we look at this song, um, the first verse and the second verse and the fourth verse of Joy to the World describe a rejoicing world who receives her Savior and King when he returns to rule and reign. Notice verse 1. It says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. It's not talking about a baby here. It's talking about the King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. So there's great rejoicing, as the psalmist says, when the king returns. Verse 2 says, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. This is far past a crib. This is already after the resurrection. This is the Savior. He is now reigning. Let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. The whole earth rejoices at the return of the creator king. And then verse 4 says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So again, this is a victorious time. This is the fulfillment of time. And this is what every one of God's children long for when he returns and Eternity is ushered in. There's a new heaven and a new earth, and the king reigns eternal. So let's notice this. Psalm 96, 1 and 2. I want to read that. It begins by revealing our great salvation. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. There is a salvation that we rejoice in. That's what the psalmist is saying. This is, this is amazing that the God of the universe would stoop to save the rebels who sinned against him. But that's the glory. There is a savior and there is salvation from that God. Verses 10 through 13 go on to say, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So now, not only do we establish the fact that God is the God of salvation, but now we look forward. The psalmist is looking all the way to the end of all things, the culmination of all times when the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. See, this is a future time when, when the new heavens and the new earth are forever established. And forever God reigns in equity and per perfect justice. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. 
for he comes. Mm. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That's an important word. This is, this is sobering. This should sober us. This, this is this coming of, of the king. Yes, for his children, it's glorious. But for those who don't know him, it's horrific. He comes to judge in righteousness. But look at this. And the peoples in his faithfulness. Those who are in Christ, God judges us faithfully. Now, that's verses 1, 2, and 4. What about verse 3? Well, verse 3 introduces the reason that we need a Savior. Talks about a curse. Let's read verse 3. Many, many, by the way, just for a little side note, many churches remove verse 3 because they think it's offensive. (laughs) So... But here's what it says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, Isaac Watts recognizes because of God's word that this world is under a curse. As far as the eye can see. Thorns infest the ground. Sorrows grow around this world. There's a curse. This verse of the song, verse 3, yearns for a time when sin and sorrow are no more. The rest of the song rejoice and remind us that that time is coming. That there's no question that he will remove all evil and reign in, in glorious justice. But this curse, here it is, right? We're here right now. What is this curse? Where did it come from? Genesis chapter 3. Again, the inspiration for Isaac, watch third verse there. Now we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We see the temptation from the serpent, right? He tempts Eve to eat the fruit. She eats the fruit that she's not to eat. He gives to her husband also with her. He eats. And then God appears and says, what have you done? And then he curses. The serpent first. Eve second. And then thirdly, Adam. And as our federal head, we see verses 17 and 19 uh, apply to all of us. It says this. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for your dust." And to dust you shall return. This is sobering. It ought to be. We see that because of sin, rebelliousness of the human heart, God cursed the entire world. I mean, literally, as D.A. Carson has said, we live, we all live in a God-damned world. Now, people look up and say, wow, you just cussed. I didn't. 
God has damned this world. And this is so sober, folks. This, this, is, this is why I say, how dare you ever use those words as a curse word? How dare we mock the sovereign power of a holy God who has damned us? How dare we, the damned, mock him by taking his name in vain like that? This is the message that all broken, sinful, accused, and damned humans must hear, folks. We shouldn't make light of it or mock it. We should hide and run from the judge who is coming because we're guilty with no hope. That's what this verse of the song is, is saying, and that's what God's word is revealing to us. What's the extent of such a curse? It's everywhere and everything. Romans 5.12 tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. All have sinned because one man sinned. So every human being is under this curse. I don't care how we were raised or what family we were born into or anything like that. It, we are all cursed. Romans 8, 18 through 24 continue to magnify the, 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 the significance and the extent of this curse. It shows us what is cursed. Paul says in, in, in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, this is a, a glimpse of hope that Paul has because of the grace of God through Christ. He looks past the curse and says, wait a minute, the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. But he goes on to say, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Because of Adam's sin, the whole world has been placed in, uh, under this curse. In hope, the world is groaning in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. So that's all of nature. Everything is cursed. The entire universe is under this curse and groaning. Even nature understands the sovereignty of God and understands that it should groan over its sin and long to be redeemed. Goes on to say, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Wow. So Paul is telling us here, the first fruits, that's the Holy Spirit. He's talking as a believer, one who has trusted the, the grace of God. The only lifeline, the only saving grace from the curse is Christ. All those who run to him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Paul says, those who have done that, we are still in this broken world. Yes, we're groaning, we're suffering. Again, this is verses that kind of combat the whole uh, 
prosperity, everything's going to be fine if you're a Christian. No, he's a believer. He's still, however, in a cursed world and therefore suffers and longs for the day that Christ returns. And we, we, are, we experience the full adoption as sons and daughters of our Father. And look what he says. What does that look like, this, this final adoption of sons and daughters by the Father? The redemption of our souls? doesn't say that. Yeah, our souls are saved, but our full salvation is the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul's saying here. All of creation will be restored, and all of our, who are in Christ, physical bodies will be restored. This is the new heaven and the new earth and the new body that we are longing for and, and should be. Why? Because Paul ends this by saying, it's in this hope that you were saved. You see that? This is a priority-setting verse for us. It sets our priorities, gives a perspective. We were not saved, obviously, according to this verse and many, many others, we were not saved to have our best life now in this life. We were saved with this hope that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And that's where throughout history Christians have lived with great joy in the face of persecution and death. This is, this is, this is the glory. Now, how are we saved? Because he says that we were saved for this hope. Well, how are we saved from the curse? Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Look at this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law or good works, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, he says. The law is not of faith. The law is a work. It's a deed. It's me trying to measure up to the holiness of God. That's what the law, by the way, is. The Ten Commandments and all the laws in the Bible, that's simply the holiness of God. And may I remind you, a perfect God. Therefore, for us to keep that law, we must keep it perfectly. And Paul reminds us this can't be by the works of the law no flesh can be justified because no flesh can keep the law the righteous will be righteous by faith he says the law is not a faith rather the one who does them shall live by them that's the law there's no grace there or faith there there's only back-breaking work if you keep them, you'll live. You break one, you die. That's the law. And that condemns us all. That's a curse in itself as well. But look, good news, <laughs> glorious news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the godless. So that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. 
are basically saying so that now we can receive all those promises that a person who kept the law perfectly would receive on the merits of Christ by faith in him, by faith in his perfect work, by faith in his law keeping, not mine, his perfection, not mine. You see, Jesus is the curse eater. He ate the curse for us. That's, that's what he did. He took the curse in his own body, in our place, substitutionarily. And God annihilated him on the cross in our place, bearing our curse. And his justice was met. 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to say this, explaining that, that idea. This idea of substitutionary atonement, that the, the just for the unjust. One of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Mm. Folks, the only hope we have of being forgiven by a holy God and being made right is to be in Christ. And you do that by faith. And I'm not talking about walking up here and signing a card and saying a prayer and, quote, joining a church or any of that stuff. Conversion is this. When a lost sinner hears these words and a light comes on and they realize Christ is my only hope. I am trusting in him. And now my life is no longer mine. I have been transformed completely by his grace. I realize the significance of the damnation of God that was upon me. And now by his grace, I see the fruitful joy and, and the glorious taste of salvation. And I want to follow him the rest of my life and serve him as my Lord and Savior. That's conversion. So I... For those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's the glorious news, right? Because he took the condemnation. <laughs> and then he gives us his righteousness in place of that. It's the great exchange of God's grace. So, so, so the, for, 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 the, for the Christian, right? For those of us gathered here today in this, in this scary world that I just mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, right? There is no more condemnation. This world, sin, Satan, even death has lost its sting for us. There's no enemy unconquered for us. Now, we may suffer, right? Yes, we're still going to suffer. Many of us may die, but it's not our enemy. The best is yet to come. The long view, folks, this is the, 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 the historic view of Christianity. It's a long view of ultimate blessing, not a short view. It's a long view of ultimate blessings. We know because of Scripture that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. It will never fade away. That's a long view. And it's that long view of God's word and his promises to us that allow us to suffer through the pain of this temporary world. So, so, so we look not to this visible world for our hope, but to a world which is to come. That, that's, that's the mentality of a Christian. That's the 
of a Christian. We're not looking to this present visible world for our fulfillment or our hope. We're looking to a world that is yet to come. This is what Paul was saying. This momentary affliction, it doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. We believe all that by faith. In closing, let me just say, Bernard Clooney, Bernard of Clooney, not George Clooney's brother, Bernard of Clooney, which is a city in France, he was a 12th century monk, and he said this, and I, and I love this. Speaking, by the way, of our eternal home, the new Jerusalem, right? The city that we are hoping for and waiting for and longing for. The city that joy to the world talks about. The, the, the joy to the world, the Lord has come. We receive our king. The world has changed. Here's what it says. They stand, those halls of Zion, all jubilant with song and bright with many an angel and all the martyred throng. The prince is ever in them. The daylight is serene. The pastures of the blessed are decked in glorious sheen. There is the throne of David. And there, from care released, the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast. And they who with their leader have conquered in the fight forever and forever are clad in robes of white. Can we sing joy to the world you better believe we can. Let's all stand together and rejoice in the promises of God.